Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor and fellow graphic novel novice, Thea Lenardutzi. Thea, you know cheese, you know foreign words and their correct pronunciation, you know the benefits of postural seating, but until this week... You did not know much about comics. Every every week it's like a run-through of my CV. It is. It's is that true fair? that I don't know a great deal about graphic novels or comics or comics with an X or, no. or or any of that, really. I could probably prattle on about how much I loved Mouse and I know a little bit about... Did you? But would you ever uh, sit down... Would you ever... Who? Aileen Kaminsky. Oh, yeah. Would you sit down with a graphic novel in the way that you would with a, a novel? With Mouse, I certainly did. And then I think possibly the reason I haven't done that I can remember since is... is because I always have other things thrust upon me. If someone, if someone were to send me a graphic novel or bring me a gaf- graphic novel and say, you have to read this now, then I, then I absolutely would do. The other thing I wanted to mention was you keep sending me emails <laughs> because you're getting people on LinkedIn, of all places, that <laughs> most the, benighted yeah. <laughs> of all social networks, complimenting you on the podcast and you, you send me these boastful emails. Well, no, but they're, 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 they're flattering emails. For both. They're not. They're not boastful for me. They're, no. they're... But people. People are moved listening to you, to us Apparently to send you so. messages on, on LinkedIn, so. which is lovely. What should they do instead? <laughs> they should leave us reviews on iTunes. I would like to point out that one of one of the um, reviews that I got via LinkedIn in, in the nineties <laughs> was from a lovely man who um, who said that uh, he he trades in rare books and um, they have a cheese club and they uh, they oh. enjoy alfresco cheese. And uh, so he, we had a chat about cheese. Alfresco cheese. Alfresco cheese. You'd be right. See, this is your CV. <laughs> it's, 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 you're, you're becoming well known as a fromager. <laughs> I would also point out that alfresco cheese is the most considerate way of enjoying cheese. That's very true. It's not. If you, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not even going to challenge you on that. Thing. I'm going to bow <laughs> to your knowledge on it. Um, so please do. I, I think there's algorithmic reasons why it's a good thing, also. But if you want to comment on the show either bother Thea on LinkedIn because uh, it gets back to me as well she proudly forwards it on <laughs> or but please do review us on iTunes you can also follow this podcast on Twitter at FBFM underscore podcast and if you want to subscribe to the TLS which you all should be doing uh, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section you can get six issues for six pounds and this week 
there is exciting or semi-exciting news. If you are a subscriber, you get free access to our 111-year-old archive, so you can read original work by all of the major literary figures of the 20th century. We've got C.S. Lewis writing about Tolkien, Virginia Woolf grumbling about sex in D.H. Lawrence, Anthony Burgess, Samuel Beckett, Nabokov, and so on. You can also enjoy TLS writers failing to spot classics when they are first published. It's something of a tradition in the early years of the TLS. This is a quote, it's my favourite quote, I think, ever in the TLS, from a 1908 review of Wind in the Willows. Ordinary life is depicted not very amusingly or searchingly, while as a contribution to natural history, the work is negligible. And I think whatever you might think of The Wind in the Willows, because it has talking moles and badgers and weasels, it is indeed negligible as a work of natural history. But that's what we said in 1908. Uh, coming up on the show this week, we'll be discussing the value of graphic novels under the umbrella heading of How Comics Got Serious. The graphic artist and academic Nicholas Streeton has reviewed two exhibitions, one in France about depictions of the Holocaust, the other in London about depictions by and of women. She will be joining us shortly. 80 years ago, Virginia Woolf spoke to the BBC on the subject of craftsmanship. There's eight minutes and 12 seconds of her voice remaining for us. We shall hear a little bit of it and talk to Emily Copley, who has written about the subject of Wolf the Broadcaster. Her voice is absolutely extraordinary. You, you want to hear it. And finally, the refugee crisis ebbs in and out of public consciousness, but remains one of the pressing issues of our modern age. Zan van Tulliken has reviewed an important new book on the subject by Alexander Betts and Paul Collier and will help us consider how soluble this problem really is. The name of the artistic medium comics or comic books carries with it inevitable connotations of frivolity, of a lack of seriousness. If you're interested in depth and range the thinking might go, you read a book. If you want temporary distraction, you read a comic. The prejudice in this area is odd if you go back to first principles. A comic is a combination of two media that are unquestionably respectable, artistic imagery and words. So what claims can be made about comics now? How seriously should we take them? Well, the person to ask is undoubtedly Nicola Streeton, who's both an academic and graphic novelist. She visited two exhibitions for the TLS, Showa et Bon Dessinée in Paris and The Inking Woman in the Cartoon Museum in London. She joins Thea and me now. In my mind, I prefer a very loose description of comics. Within comic studies, there are very clear distinctions made. So, for example, a, a cartoon is one panel, one square, so there's one thing happening and a comic strip is a series of panels, the boxes, and a graphic novel is a long-form comic. So um, a comic strip is something that might be in a newspaper or a cartoon, and a graphic novel is something that's developed from that. But um, personally, I hesitate to distinguish because I think the way I look at it, it's also about the style, and there's a particular aesthetic to the drawings of both cartoons and comics that is, that is shared, and it's about a certain language that is also drawn on in the cartoon form. So it's reducing something down to a very simple form that creates a symbolism that is immediately recognised. So, for example, um, you know, like I'm, I, this is a, a weird example that comes to mind, maybe, but you know how we, we recognise in the Western world, certainly, 
the symbols of a male and female toilets immediately. So it's that kind of idea that that's the language, visual language, and then the, the text works with it so that within a panel, within a box, you can have two messages which are seemingly very opposed. And that's what differentiates the comic form to something like illustration, where, uh, where in illustration the image is simply visualising what the text is saying. Can that be a bit forbidding? I just wonder whether there's a certain feeling to someone like me who's not that familiar with comics that feels it's almost a bit clubby. There's a certain idiom you have to learn, a certain way of reading that you've got to accustom yourself to, and it can feel a bit forbidding to, to outsiders. Is that fair at all, do you think? Well, well I'm smiling, <laughs> As you say that, and I'm also really happy you say that, because I, yes, in a good sense, there's a club that all us uh, comics people are are bonded together because it is officially a low form. So um, historically, it hasn't had the respect of higher. But on the other hand, as comic studies has grown, there is this sort of complicating of let's introduce some incredibly difficult jargon to make it seem like it's something but I I that's why I began this by saying um, in my view it you can combine them all I prefer to be able to say cartoon or comics and interchange but interchange the two or say it's all comics and, and certainly there are people who really don't like the term graphic novel because it's trying to make a low form into something higher and and elevate it as a form and they you know one argument is well the beauty of the form is its democracy its ephemerality and its its lightheartedness another aspect of the of the clubbiness that you were talking about is is the use that comics have traditionally been put to in terms of they tend to cohere around groups that are fighting for a particular thing so i'm thinking of of say the comics with an x which you write oh, about in your yeah. piece what, just explain, what are the comics with an X? Well, in the 60s in America, part of the underground press was comics with an X, which were comics that were subverting the form in a sense that they started to deal with more complex subjects, so politics, which was the, the atmosphere of the late 60s. And a lot of it was also around drugs and sex and rock and roll, hence the X was X-rated. So it was bringing the comics form that had been dominated by being for children for 70 years back to an adult audience and an adult readership. So that's what the comics were. And and so from that, as you were saying, that there's this clubbiness of it's, it became a political something of a political possibly tool. And the political edge of that, obviously, we trace back to, as you do uh, in your piece, the, the connection between comics and, and, and the Holocaust, representations of the Holocaust. Yes. And actually, I thought you were going to say also before that, it goes back to you know, William Hogarth and cartoonists mm. like that. So that so there's also that deeper history of political satire. Well, well, well you went to see this exhibition, uh, Shoer Bon Dessiné, which is about yeah. the Holocaust and how it could be represented in the, the medium of, of, of comics. What did you learn from that? What was, is there a thesis behind the exhibition? Oh, there's probably several feces behind the exhibition. Um, And it was fascinating and and fascinating to talk to the curator, one of the curators who took me around. So it's really what their aim was. The aim of the curators was to say that although for some decades after the war, Second World War, uh, there were stories of the Holocaust and, and the camps were told in comics and superhero comics, there wasn't any reference 
to it being a Jewish Holocaust. It wasn't specific, the specificness of Jewishness was removed from the story. So though, although they were about the camps, it wasn't evident that it was Jewish um, victims, which and why was, was really that? interesting. Why was that? Well, so there were several reasons, but um, so one of the, them was that during the war, there was still a need to call uh, men to service. So that by presenting the the true horror of it and and what it was about would put people off <laughs> because it's you know it's about death and torture and so on so and horror so that characters like Captain America were about represented heroism and chivalry and war is this great thing for young men to join up something like that so. And that also explains why the comics form was very male and had a very male feel to it. And lots of the stories for quite some time after the war as well is this celebrating the heroism of the people who went to war and lost their lives. So that was one aspect. And there was also, uh, I think it was a specific to the politics of France after the war as well, that a lot of um, the population of France had actually been you know, in alliance with the Nazis or supporters. So there was that element. But... So they didn't want it sort of represented back to them. Yeah. Uh, uh, t- tell us about Mouse by Art Spiegelman, because I suppose when we were talking about this in the office and we said, oh, there's this, ho- this Holocaust exhibition, virtually everyone I mentioned that to said, oh, Mouse by Art Spiegelman mm. is, is, is the thing they've in- initially thought of. Yes, it's fascinating. And and, and again, uh, Pastor Monique said that the curator, uh, the way they've, presented laid out the exhibition is in effect it's pre-mouse and post-mouse so there was all this this rise of the superhero comic and building america up to be great and then there's the sort of reality that started coming out in the 70s and and by the way to go back to the comics the underground movement that was um where art spiegelman came from he was a trained artist and his interest in comics was more from the what we call alternative or, or counterculture. So, so in the 1970s, he had been drawing this um, more autobiographical story based on his parents' experience of the Holocaust and um, surviving the Holocaust. So, so that became a very new way of using comics to tell this very serious story. And, and it, it's been an immense impact on comics as we know it. And myself as a cartoonist like you it's it was the first graphic novel that I came into contact with and and thought oh oh this isn't comics in the stereotypical way of superheroes or Mickey Mouse it's something much more uh, challenging and innovative so so I mean the innovation is of course that he used animals to tell the story and he portrayed the Jews as mice the Nazis as cats and the Poles as dogs sometimes I forget the way around but anyway this was at the time... Yeah, I think it's the Americans as dogs and the Poles as pigs. Is that right? Well done. You got it. Okay. Yeah, so right. it's this, so he'd been developing this in a serialising it. And then when he collected the volume together and approached publishers to have it published, there was this real fear of taking it on because of the risk of trivialising something, a subject matter so serious. But then when it, he did find a publisher, it became an instant overnight success and bestseller and still is and won the Pulitzer Prize. So the legacy of that is that publishers are more open to autobiographical stories, often around trauma and and more serious subject matter. And and since then, that was 86 and 92, his book was published from memory. And then, although it was available, you know, known about since the late 70s, and since then there's been this change in 
how we understand the comics form can be used, the applications of it. And you write about it in terms of trauma. What, what is it about the form that, that makes it so suited to, to depicting and working through that? Well, one of the ideas that's been written about is the idea of repetition, so that if it's, for example, an autobiography, and, and most people working in this graphic novel autobiographical tradition, which is also different to mainstream comics, by which I mean superhero and the funnies, most people in, in, this, in this world are the writer and the drawer. So uh, we're doing everything. And um, one of the things that you do when you're drawing a story of yourself is you're you're constantly drawing yourself. So every panel, you're representing yourself and there's something about reliving. There's a, a theory that talks about uh, the, the reliving of the trauma. So it's going based on Freudian ideas of trauma and catharsis. So it's, it's, it's related to that. So that might be why, why it's successful. Um, although it also might be, um, that explains the author why it's successful, but it, perhaps it explains for the reader as why it's successful for the reader as well. But it's also um, as a book on a specific trauma. For example, if you take a graphic novel about the experience of cancer, for example, and you are yourself, you've been diagnosed with cancer and you're in a state of shock, to read about it in prose form might be very tiring. Whereas something like a graphic novel, you can read it in an hour so it's very it is a simple form and it's the simplicity that actually is its strength in this case so you can digest something and it, it because of the immediacy of the symbolism and the impact you can get the message very quickly but just finally you, you get to see this exhibition the inking woman uh, and you said that the comic book in america you know captain america superheroes were very very male yeah. and i think that's been a true almost the entirety of the history of the, sort of the superhero narrative what's the story that's told in that exhibition of female cartoonists and, and comic artists um well i've noticed is that feminists use the cartoon form from the 70s so in britain certainly so that magazines that appeared to promote feminism such as spare rib trouble and strife and and so on and and feminist review as it became an academic subject with women's studies and in every single issue from uh, the beginning of Spare Rib, they carried these funny cartoons. And again, that's why it, it is predominantly cartoons. And from the 70s onwards, there's been this ongoing development of women cartoonists uh, working away, but parallel, really, to the mainstream comics platforms. You know, even now in mainstream comics, it's not obvious. There are women, but it's not a women's platform. And yet, something like the graphic novel has women have been coming along and finally there's it feels like there's an acceptance within this form because it's combining literature with comics can you give us just to end on can you give us a few suggestions of where we might start who we should go and look up yes uh marjan satrapi's persepolis is a fantastic graphic um, novel yeah. Um, film, didn't yeah yeah yes and the film and and that's great too hand animated but in britain one that's just come out is paula knight's the facts of life which is addressing issues of infertility and multiple miscarriages and una's becoming unbecoming is another interesting graphic novel that came out last year about slut-shaming set against the background of Peter Sutcliffe's attacks in Yorkshire. So it's, it's again, it's um, historical, but also based on personal experience. 
Persepolis particularly, I, I thought the film was was great. Uh, yeah. So if people haven't seen that, but that's that's three things for us to go and um, to go and look at. Uh, Nicola, thank you so much for for joining us today, and thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's interesting, isn't it? How um how in her piece, um, Nicola points out how successful the uh, Comics Unmasked exhibition at the British Library was a few years ago, and again how successful this one in in France has been. It really gives you a sense of of the appetite is really there. People are really drawn to these exhibitions. I think that's right. I, I, I think because the, there's something in the culture clash between cartoons and the Holocaust, which probably has a sense to people that there must be something real happening because mm. it's a very simplistic, childish almost medium at one level and then it's the sort of the most difficult and large subject almost that exists mm. and the two being brought together I can see why that would intrigue people yeah I can't I, I wonder as well if it's got something to do with because it's such a, a deceptively gentle form yeah whether whether people then feel like they're not being bullied in any way to yeah, feel any particular some... way or think uh, along a certain line it's it's much more allowing of of your own impression I think and... that's, that's 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 very interesting should we have cartoons in the TLS there Possibly, if the right person comes along. Well, that's the thing. I'm kind of, you know, there, there are, they exist in New Yorker and they exist in some other places. And something that's funny and, and quick and... I Is this should... a recruitment drive? Well, yeah, actually, I tell you, what, if, you if you are a cartoonist listening, uh, send me an email, contact me on Twitter, at Stig Abel. And yeah, I, the last year I've been mulling it over. I think the, di the difficulty is finding the right number of people who are capable of producing the right number of cartoons because once you do it you've got to do it yeah. forever and it, you, you need a stock of them but I'd love the TLS to have one or two mm. cartoons that just made you think or made you laugh and, and yeah I, I just don't quite know how to get the supply going mm. well so, as you know my skills are limited to octopuses you are very good octopi I don't think it's octopi <laughs> no it's it not like that, that, no, it's, octop it's octopuses it's yeah it's octopuses <laughs> and I have seen that joy in fact when I almost in my first week <laughs> someone's an author Thea, you know, she's good at drawing. <laughs> oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah, she drew an amazing octopus. <laughs> and then did they even find it? I, cause actually, I've got a mental picture of the octopus that you well, draw. When Have I, you drawn anything when else? I, when, I, um, when I left um, the TLS briefly. The first time. Terrible mistake, yeah, obviously. Dreadful. And um, my leaving at my leaving party... Um, you know, as is the tradition, you do a mock-up of, of a front page. I of did, indeed. Page, but that's, yeah. where it, that's where it featured. I can't remember why I'd drawn it. What was the headline? All. Can't remember. Oh. Well, you're back now, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, was, that was a non-story, but yeah. okay, that's but where it came from. You're artistic and you think we should do cartoons yes. is, the, is the conclusion yes. we'll draw from that. Well, that's worth doing. The refugee crisis is a paradox, ever present and yet often ignored, something that excites pity but also seems to rouse anger, a state of affairs that is sometimes seen as a cause of grief, sometimes as a consequence. We're arguably seeing one of the greatest mass movements of people in human history. Certainly we know that there are 65 million uprooted people in the world and 20 million of them are refugees, the highest since the Second World War. Oxford rock star professors Alexander Betts and Paul Collier have written a book entitled Refuge, Transforming a Broken Refugee System that seeks to provide a solution to this seemingly intractable problem. It's been reviewed this week for us by Alexander Van Tulliken, who has an unlikely CV which includes being a doctor, an expert in humanitarian aid, a dietary guru and a children's TV presenter, among other things. He's like a benevolent, intelligent version of George Osborne when it comes to wearing multiple hats. He joins Thea and me now. Uh, Zan, let's start with 
the problem and then we should probably move to the solution. Is there a common and accepted set of causes for the refugee crisis? I think this book covers that really well. I, I think the category of who are refugees, who are migrants and how we should describe and define those people is, is really up for grabs. And there is a whole field of study called migration studies that seeks to ask in detail what makes people move. But basically, yes, this book describes very beautifully how the chaos in Europe kicked off, what happened in the Arab Spring and how that drove more people to Europe and how, if you like, that snowballed, how it became a sort of vicious circle of the more people that went to Europe, the more doors that got opened and the more doors that got opened, the more people came until the system collapses and the Schengen system gets shut down. People stop being allowed to move. Um, Germany changes the rules again. And so we now have a, a big sort of die off in the number of people coming. And I think that that is the main strength of this book. I've traveled through Europe trying to meet refugees and understand it. And up close, you literally cannot see, well, I shouldn't say literally, but it almost feels that you cannot see the wood for the trees. In, in fact, this book tidies that up very nicely. It's a very, very hard set of questions to answer. Is the problem that we almost look at the output? We look at someone who's walking through the streets of Germany or, or on a beach in, in Greece, whereas the, the question occurs in the Middle East itself, that we need to find the political answers to the original causes rather than the symptoms, which is the refugees arriving actually in Europe. I think so. And it's also very hard to understand why any individual person leaves their place. We, we want a lovely, simple narrative to say, look, this person left Syria because there's a war. In reality, they left Syria because they couldn't make any money because their business had been bombed and because they heard that there was a better opportunity to work. And frequently, when they arrive in Germany and find out that what the human traffickers promised them is a lie, they aren't going to get a house, a car and 5,000 euros a month. They turn around and go home. And so that status of fleeing persecution is probably not quite right. They're probably just fleeing danger. Um, and they're also fleeing poverty or at least the, the increasing risk of extreme poverty or the risk of danger. And so it's a very, very muddled, we want to impose a, a clear narrative. And in fact, even the people themselves struggle to articulate and, what is going on. And does it make it less, I mean, that, that seems to be the intriguing question. Are, are we less morally obliged to help someone who is leaving Syria because their life is so unutterably awful, they want to find a better way, way of existence? Now, that might make them a refugee in one sense, but it also there's a grey area between that and being someone who's just seeking a better economic existence. So they're, they're economic migrants. And are we more morally obliged to help a refugee than an economic migrant? Well, this is what Collier and Betts take on with a huge amount of clarity, but I'm not sure when you're actually in the situation and dealing with it out of the ivory tower, whether it is, it is that clear. I mean, I, when you personally stand in a refugee camp and see what it means to put your life on hold and to pause in a camp for five or 10 years with your children and deny them education and opportunity, it becomes very hard to sift out um, what the moral priorities should be. So I guess there's a sort of fairly straightforward moral hierarchy of going, well, we should help we should help people who are being bombed and killed and persecuted because of who they are more than we should just help people who want a better job. But it becomes, at least for me, even that calculation becomes pretty difficult from the privileged position I sit in. And so, I mean, the whole, the whole argument hinges on, on this close-to-home approach and these special economic zones, or SEZs. 
really what we're talking about is sort of offshore labour. So, I mean, is that not a slippery slope? What kind of jobs are we talking about? I, I guess I, I worry that it's a slippery slope into economic exploitation, really. I think that's exactly right. And this book is wonderful and optimistic on the one hand, because it says, look, why don't we give refugees jobs? That'll be good for them and good for us. And the best bit is the jobs aren't even going to be in England or Germany. We we in the West don't have to really let people in because it's better for them to stay slow, closer to home. They can get home more easily and the jobs will be more appropriate for them. And yet this is an argument for every anti-immigrant, right wing, uh, whatever, all that sort of unpleasantness that is, 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 is raising its head in Europe at the moment. This book is, is grist to their mill. So I think it's naive in the end. On, on the one hand, it is fantastic to let refugees work and it is madness to stop the tens of millions of people who are refugees from being able to work. I mean, those are squandered lives. But the idea that they present an economic opportunity and that this is a solution to the problem, I think misunderstands both what refugees seek to achieve, which is something much better than just working in a special economic zone. And it also misunderstands like what this what these economic zones are going to do. Well, this this the whole project was in. I mean, they've they've implemented one in, in Jordan, haven't they? There, there is an, a version right. of this. How, how success and that's had a year now. How successful has it been in its first year? Well, so I think, Thea, that's, that is the most wonderful question. And, and that's what's extraordinary about this book is these two absolutely stellar professors. I mean, it would be hard to find people with better resumes or who are more well known in this area. And they have set up an idea which not only can be easily measured eventually, but can kind of be measured now. The Jordanian government was meant to issue 200,000 work permits for refugees. They've issued less than 40,000. Now, 40,000 is a lot. But when the anthropologists start interviewing people, when the NGOs start interviewing people and saying, Look, how well is this scheme working for you? The refugees say, we're worried that it's going to stop us getting permission to move to Europe because European countries will reasonably say that we've already got a scheme where we've given you a job in Jordan. You don't need to travel any further. Um, they much prefer seasonal work because it gives them an opportunity to move and to earn money um, in less formal ways. That the informal economy in some ways works well for some refugees. And so even the people who got to the kind of end product and have a job in the special economic zone, don't say, oh, my God, my life has been transformed. This is fantastic. The interviews would then tend to be more like, you know, this is OK, but it's still pretty rubbish compared to other opportunities I might have. So, so the, the, the notion that this is a sort of silver bullet doesn't seem to, to exist. Let's bring it back to Britain, if, if, if we may, uh, Zan, because I'm, I'm interested in your views on the British attitude to the crisis, because we are now slightly surprisingly, perhaps, in the middle of an election campaign, which at its heart will have populist calls for the reduction of immigration and foreign aid. And in some ways, foreign aid is as hot an election issue as immigration. People say they don't want to see Britain spending lots of money on foreigners. They want to see Britain spending money on the NHS and the social care crisis. So we are living in a period over the next month where issues around how we consider people coming to this country or people being the beneficiaries of of money from this country will will be very central, won't they? Uh, Enormously. And I I wish that it was possible to give a very clear, simple answer. My my personal view, uh, I guess most simply, is that the money we spend as foreign aid has a huge value both ethically and pragmatically and and um and we do get benefit from it but there are unmet needs in the uk and it is unreasonable to say that helping people closer to home um makes sense so i think undermining those arguments is not 
straightforward at all. Um, we let very few refugees in and we are not overwhelmed with immigrants we don't need or, or don't want. They've been a huge boost to the economy. And so whether we're talking about refugees or economic migrants, um, we don't suffer in either case from either category of person. And so I think most of those arguments are, I think all of those arguments about who we let in are, are fear-mongering and really not grounded in any fact, none of which has ever stopped those arguments working before. But, but the, the foreign aid money is more complicated. Foreign aid money we have not traditionally derived. There have been large numbers of projects which have not given us huge value for money. Well, it's a UN recommend. And it's one of those things where the more you look into it, you know, the UN recommends 0.7%, I think, of GDP to go on foreign aid. And yet you speak to virtually anyone in government. Nobody thinks having an arbitrary target is a sensible way of ensuring foreign aid is well spent. Because what happens is you get near the end of a financial year and you've got a certain amount of money. And so you spend it on whatever project will take the money in the most easily and efficient fashion. So you're not focusing on, say, building a, 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 a special economic zone in Jordan because we think that will deal with the migration and refugee crisis. You might spend it on something in Egypt, which has no benefit to anybody. It's possible, yeah. And that's not, that's not uncommon in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, so I work for um, an NGO called Doctors of the World. I have been responsible for taking a salary from that foreign aid budget and for raising money on their behalf and on behalf of other organisations. And I guess the reason that I think we should be spending that money on foreign aid is because we are getting better at doing it. And because it compels us as a country, as a government, and as a group of private institutions, NGOs and companies, to look outwards and to attempt to solve problems. And I guess that what I like about this book is it is optimistic and it is making a case. And although the case is a bit naive, it's a bit simplistic and it won't get there, an attitude that says, spend the money at home, don't care about the foreigners, don't look out into the world, in the end does not do us any good. We benefit from being cosmopolitan and we benefit from attempting to do good in the world and to believe that you can just do good and do no harm would would be to totally misrepresent how the foreign aid system works but there is a there is a delicate balance there that for me swings in favor of saying almost that it's a gesture that we reach out and try to help people because to not do so would would be appalling and especially i mean syria syria now we do not have a solution to that problem and if you let everyone in from syria that causes huge problems not at home but it causes problems for the war in syria as well and so none of this is straightforward but a caring attitude and those kind of gestures to me create the kind of world that we want to live in not that is not an argument that will satisfy paul collier or alexander betzer anything well it's, a, it's an argument that broadly satisfies me uh, so uh, uh, zan thank you that was uh, in that case mission accomplished mission exactly what more can anyone possibly want uh, zan thank you so much for, uh, for for joining us today lovely to speak to you it's interesting that theresa may who possibly because she believes she's going to get the biggest majority <clears> ever has said now in terms she will stick to the 0.7%. She didn't need to, you know, mm. if she was throwing red meat to her traditional supporters, she wouldn't do that. She wouldn't, she'd have vacillated a bit on that, but she said the 0.7% is important still. Mm. I suppose sticking to the 0.7% isn't isn't going further. So she's just saying we're yeah. going to stay. And most people, I, I don't know, I mean, she's just making it clear that She's not going to do more than has been done. No, she's she not ha- going to do less. And so she has said she'll do it differently. So what will be interesting will be, do you start, and you've seen this already, do you start spending a bit of that 0.7% on things that are broadly defined as foreign aid, which might be defence in foreign countries? Yeah. Uh, and I wonder whether that might 
shift slightly that would be the bit where she she compromised because i'm I'm kind of with zand in the sense that gestures do matter in politics yeah and although i think the 0.7 percent causes administrative problems and therefore i think being locked to it is possibly causes more problems than it solves so as a gesture it kind of works would you favor more of a, a sort of an honesty box approach yeah i think i'd say that you'd, you'd want to prioritize what you're doing and mm. so you'd almost spend where the priorities are so instead of saying it'll always be 0.7 percent you'd say it will be between 0.5 and 1 percent and we will prioritize these 10 areas and yeah. if we and then you do that and you take the money as far as you believe the money will go what you have at the minute is just this accountant ma- accountants manager yeah you sort of say oh, oh god we've done you know we, we, we haven't done 12 billion we've done 10 so what can we spend this 2 billion on and then they make bad decisions and i think that's where the problem with with foreign aid lies but as a gesture i mean i want to be part of a country that helps other people mm. yes you do <laughs> yes. and you do so you, sorry, you looked shocked to me when i said that I thought, I thought you were about to say no you don't you don't want that at all i think we all do i think we all do exactly quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are too many books written and published? It's a very contemporary-sounding question, and Stig is nodding now. It is indeed one that literary editors have asked themselves on an almost daily basis, and it's, it's one that Virginia and Leonard Woolf were already arguing about in the late 1920s, before the commercial currents of publishing became as torrential as they now are. We can only imagine the wry and authoritative jabs that the two must have made, because no record of the talk remains. Back then, the BBC didn't record its programmes, helpfully. What we do have, though, is a clip eight minutes and 12 seconds long, from another broadcast, one of only three ever made by Woolf, in which Virginia Woolf grapples with the unteachable, mercurial and promiscuous nature of words. The talk was called Craftsmanship, and it aired 80 years ago, more or less, to the day. And it was Woolf's last ever broadcast, although nobody, apart perhaps from Woolf, could have known that then. 
The clip is well known, it's on YouTube and it's got about half a million views, but its rather loaded context is not known. We'll run the clip at the end of the show, but here's a snippet to give you a sense of it. In order to use new words properly, you would have to invent a whole new language, and that, there are no doubt we shall come to it, is not at the moment our business. Our business is to see what we can do with the old English language as it is. How can we combine the old words in new orders so that they survive and so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth? That is the question. And the person who could answer that question would deserve whatever crown of glory the world has to offer. Think what it would mean if you could teach or if you could learn the art of writing, why every book, every newspaper we pick up would tell the truth or would create beauty. We're joined on the line now by Emily Copley in Montreal, who's written a commentary on Wolf's broadcast in this week's paper. So, Emily, I'm wondering, this was part of a new BBC series called Words Fail Me, which Wolf was asked to contribute to as a representative of fiction writers. Why, why did she dislike the proposed title so much? Yes, she was not the only one invited, let that be said. She was not supposed to be the representative. Aldous Huxley and a few others were invited, but he declined. So she was the representative. The idea of craftsmanship suggested to Wolf that words can be subdued, words can be controlled, that we are in control of words and they will do our bidding and we can define them precisely and use them exactly how we mean and they will do what we say. And partly this is a sort of straw man argument. I mean, if you ask someone, you be the representative of fiction among philologists and lawyers and other people who need words to be very precise, of course, Wolf will sort of play up her role as a fiction writer and thus as someone who, who values words for their associations, for their ambiguities. So partly, you know, her, her difference with the other speakers is exaggerated. Part, partly it's genuine that she does not think writing is a craft, as so many people do today. She thinks it is partly inspiration. Certainly it's informed by education and reading. But finally, one has to be very lucky and words have to be very cooperative. You can't just set about to write the brilliant thing. Before we move on to more of what she said, um, we've just heard her voice. It is an absolutely extraordinary sounding voice. Some of it's, I, I, I think that people speaking on the BBC in the 20s will have had that very BBC RP deliberate voice. Do you think this is her natural voice? Um, do, is that how Virginia Woolf would have sounded on a daily basis, do you think? You're asking me to adjudicate between Quentin Bell and George Ryland. <laughs> yes. Well, Quentin Bell thinks that her voice sounds strained, not at all like her. Um, and he is, of course, with her nephew. George Ryland, who was her good friend, um, and a prompt, in fact, to her speaking on the radio, thought that it, 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 she sounded very anxious at first, but then she loosened up and became, quote, her very self. I don't know. I would like to think it's her real voice for the reason that it's all we have. It would be nice to think we could expand upon this and imagine how she sounded. On the other hand, it would be nice to think this isn't her real voice because it sounds indeed a, a little haughty to us today, but um, there's a distance of time and then I'm American, so I'm, I'm not, I, I probably shouldn't weigh in on that. Well, I, I do think there was a thing at the time, which is not entirely uh, irrelevant, which is when you're talking on the BBC in the 20s, I suspect you almost put your Sunday best on. Well, there was yeah. a manual, wasn't there? Yeah. A pronunciation guide. Well, received pronunciation. RP yeah. is a BBC. And, and I don't know, she's, it doesn't sound natural 
to to me. But it, it's a it's a it's an incredibly striking voice still, though, isn't it? I mean, it lingers it is, with you. It is, and she was very. I'm sure she felt very much that she was performing, that this was a performance, and she hated performance. She hated. I mean, she loved parties and dressing up, and 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 on the one hand, sort of thrilled to that. Um, but the the element of artificiality and constriction and being on the stage, in a sense, this she didn't like at all. And this extended to actual dramas, actually going to the theater. She she was always much more interested in the audience around reacting to what was happening on stage than to the players. Anything that, that was, um, yes, performative is the word, what sort of irritated her. It's a funny thing. I wonder why she accepted the, 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 the gig in a way, because like you said Aldous Huxley didn't, when she became possibly against her own wishes the representative of, of all fiction in, in this series. It's interesting in that respect because the Wolves were wary of the BBC at the time. Leonard Wolfe, I think, warned not long after that it was verging on dictatorship and clearly wasn't a decision that, that she took lightly. Yes, and in fact he had said that even before the broadcast, yes. But I think she was very persuaded but because of her friendship with George Rylands. George Rylands was um, a Cambridge Don and an expert on Shakespeare. And when he was in his early 20s, he had worked at the Hogarth Press. And he was very good friends with the Wolfs, and they thought of him as a golden boy and um, extremely charming and life-giving. These are the words they use. So they really, um, and his connection was, he introduced them to George Barnes, the producer of the Words Family series. And they, they had meals together, and it was through George Rylands that um, George Barnes sort of felt he could write to Wolf and invite her to participate um, and indeed, he's so eager to get Wolf on the show um, that he says, uh, I know your spirit soars outside the four dimensions and cannot be confined to a studio at Broadcasting House. Can I tempt you by suggesting that Dady, that's Rylands, Dady cross-question you? Um, and I'm, I'm quoting. So, he, so the idea was that Dady, George Rylands, was very implicated in the invitation and he and George Barnes so desperately wanted Wolf to come that they were even willing to say, don't even bother writing a talk, we'll just have an on-air conversation in the event. That's, of course, not what happened. But I think the idea of having a conversation, the idea that this could be a live dialogue, informs what Wolf ends up writing, which is sort of to turn a monologue into a dialogue. And indeed, she alludes to a talk that Rylance had given before the series, in a different series about Shakespeare, in addition to alluding to speakers in her own series. So she turns what could have been a real conversation um, into a more deliberate conversation on the page and on the air. And, and the concern about the BBC was that it was trying to make moral judgments about writers at the time. So it was it was trying to exclude people like D.H. Lawrence or, or, or James Joyce. And presumably the Wolves would be very conscious of that, not least because she was writing books that some people would object to themselves. Yes, exactly. And, and as, I, as I mentioned in my piece, the Wolfs, uh, Leonard and Virginia, both were among 40 writers who signed a letter um, to the Times denouncing the BBC for, for their sort of censorship of contemporary fiction. So, um, and of course, the Wolfs were, were very sympathetic to, to Joyce's um, being censored and, and Lawrence's. Yes, exactly. All of that is true. And so what, what came after her talk? I mean, if I can summarise that the, the three talks before her argued in favour for a sort of a scientific pinning down of language um, and then she opened it up to say no we, we won't master it it's it's a mercurial form what did the speakers that followed her argue for did they respond to it did they take issue with it in the same way as she had taken issue with the speakers that went before her there were 
uh, four speakers after her. There was a uh, Lord Macmillan spoke about legal language, and he said that legal language has to be extremely precise, otherwise we get into a, a mess. Um, he does not. He does not mention Wolf. Um, then you have uh, Douglas Woodruff, who spoke on political language, and he is saying, like Wolf, oh, it's language has all this ambiguity. But unlike Wolf, he says this is really for the for the benefit of politicians. That politicians can use a very ambiguous word that doesn't commit them to anything, um, and and so we have to be careful of, of that. Um, and so he doesn't. He also doesn't mention Wolf, but what he does, like Wolf, is emphasize that ambiguity um, conveys power. That words don't need to always be um, precise and sort of tamped down. That there is an inherent ambiguity in language. For Wolf, the power of this ambiguity lies in art and beauty. For Douglas Woodruff, it lies in persuading the masses or getting elected. Um, then you have two speakers who who do seem to come closer to Wolf. Leonora Lockhart. The other woman in this series speaks about basic English, which was an 850-word vocabulary for non-native speakers. Um, and she says that, um, and she mentions Wolf by name. She says, in an earlier, I quote, and in an earlier talk in this series, Virginia Wolf asserted that words are not useful at all because they lead the mind capriciously on from one image to another and will not stay put. The trouble with the plain reader, when confronted with the stuff of literature, is that words as he knows them are useful and quite unexciting. He cannot make them stand on their heads and perform tricks. So Lockhart does engage Wolf in dialogue in order to say, well, Wolf is speaking to the sophisticated reader, but I, promoting basic English, am speaking to the plain reader. So she believe, Lockhart yeah. believed that, the, that English should be narrowed down to just 850 words yes. uh, as a way of, of improving understanding. Yes. Well, the understanding, it, it was primarily for, for non-native speakers. So improving the understanding of people who who didn't have access to the, you know, the half a million words of the OED. So her, her audience is very different from that of Wolf's, although there's a question of who, who her audience is, in fact, because she says that basic English can translate uh, Joyce for the uninitiated, and she gives an example of uh, a translation of Anna Livia Pluribel. But you think, well, really, who, who cares what Joyce is writing if they don't know English? Or why are they interested in Joyce, but they can't bother to learn you know, maybe a thousand words of English? So. And how can Joyce be Joyce without Joyce's language? But at school, for example, I remember learning Chaucer, and you, have, you, you, you read a very simplified version of Chaucer next to it. Is it entirely impossible that someone could read... Joyce and have a and have an an almost a simplified translation running alongside it. If you're reading for events, yeah. If you're for reading for, or for, or... School, or for school, you know, mm. I, I think there's translations of Shakespeare even where there's sort of the, there's the language. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it, it is it is a thing, isn't it, to simplify what otherwise would be very inaccessible texts for people who otherwise would not get access to them. Yes, it is a thing, and and you know, translations of Shakespeare, translations in quotes, are what gives us our word Baudelaireized. It was Baudelaire who 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 made Shakespeare so simple initially, um, I, and I, in this case, it really does seem for show. Look, let's take the most difficult work in English, that's you know, arguably barely in English, and turn it into the most simple kind of English. I don't know that they're actually aiming at classroom instruction, but more. It's a it's an advertisement for basic English. Look what it can do. Uh, and just finally, Emily, uh, Virginia Woolf didn't think anyone was listening to her when she gave this uh, talk. <laughs> That's right. I, I was trying to find it in your piece. She said she basically <laughs> she puts in a diary. Everything is the same. Everything Nothing has changed. <laughs> the world remains unchanged. What was she expecting? Was, yeah. she, was she expecting someone to write her letter? I was I was wonderful broadcasting Virginia or, or something like that. 
It's very funny. I don't know what she expected, but she hadn't broadcast. This is 37, and her previous broadcast was in 29, so it's been some time since she's broadcast. And I would think the rise that the BBC had greater power and um, reach over the course of those years, so maybe she thought that by broadcasting in 37, it, I don't know, it had some greater sway than it used to have. She didn't get it anyway. She, no, she, didn't get she the re- said to herself, never again. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. She didn't get the reaction yeah, she, she wanted. Yeah, she, she felt sort of pinched and, and made to dance and sing. It was, it, she was not in her element. Well, it's a, it's a great joy, for, and we'll hear, listen a bit more of it uh, afterwards, Emily, but it's one of those figures where if you haven't heard Virginia Woolf speak, I think you'd want to hear her, her, her talk. And as you said, if this is what she sounded like, so much the better. Um, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for Bye. having me. I'm not surprised. It's it's not the most barnstorming of uh, pieces of of rhetoric, is it? I mean, if you were listening to, I don't know if people were s- sitting in their kitchens, you know, listening to Radio Four. I, I can imagine there would have been a certain amount of confusion, but, but it is in a way it is it, what you would perhaps expect someone like Virginia Woolf to, to say about language. These te- words that you can't rely on them, you can't subdue them. They're they're tricksy and they change, and you know that was how she perceived the world as you know however many facets of other thing it's it just seems it, hard to think how it was i mean i know it is framed very clearly in the series but listening to it i don't know what you'd be expected to do with it as a as a listener in well in a sense i, I get i f- imagine that and i haven't listened to the other talks in it or, or read them because i think they were reprinted in, in the listener after they dared I think if you listen to it in the context of the series, you would probably get a different impression of it. Because if you look at the three speakers who went before, yeah. it's then very clear that her talk was a, a real reaction against that kind of male Victorian pinning down of words and, 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 and mastering of the language. And she was just saying, I'm the master of nobody. We, are the mas- we aren't the master of this language, which is exactly what language is. You can't master it. No, and I just think if, if you, it's because... That's such a good way of summarising it, and yet she speaks in this because it is that period, this <laughs> curiously emotionless. Yeah, incredibly stilted. I mean, it did make me think that she she must have read the BBC's guide to pronunciation at the time. It just it made me feel like I should have a copy as erstwhile or otherwise pronunciation guru. In fact, that's right. Someone should issue me with. You are with not that. RP though, because you're northern. <laughs> I'm RP we, on some words and we not are, on others. We are very flat vowels. This is like yeah. the flat vowel club. You know, <laughs> we, 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 massac- we massacre the English language. Oh, the- speak for yourself. Well, I certainly do. We're, we're very provincial sounding, aren't we? We're, we're everything fl- everything's flat. We're, the BBC would not be happy. I don't. Virginia Woolf. Would- you're on the BBC, I so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the occasion- I'm still waiting for the call. They occasionally have to allow minorities <laughs> in, I think. And I, I'm, I'm classed in that regard. Virginia Woolf. Would Virginia Woolf like this podcast is, is a question to which there is only one answer. Uh. Oh dear. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Zan Van Tulliken, Emily Copley, Nicholas Street, and of course the ghost of Virginia Woolf. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which has all sorts of comic book delights. Uh, a wonderful piece on the short stories of Jean Rhys and a very odd theory about the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And while you are there, you can also now explore our 111-year-old archive, which is chock-full 
of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. yeah, he actually wrote for us really she started, regularly. She started on our paper. We made her. We made her. We're taking responsibility. <laughs> we're, t- we're taking the credit for that. You can tweet this podcast at, at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions. And join us next week where we shall be looking at the strange story of book bandits in Timbuktu. We're going to play you out now with Virginia Woolf talking about words. Until next week, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Now, this power of suggestion is one of the most exciting and most mysterious properties of words. Most exciting if you are a person in the habit of using them. Everyone who has ever written a sentence must be conscious or half-conscious of it. Words, English words, are full of echoes, memories, associations, naturally. They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the fields, for so many centuries. And that is one of the chief difficulties in writing in today. They're stored with other meanings, with other memories. And they have contracted so many famous marriages in the past. The splendid word incarnadine, for example, who can use that without remembering multitudinous seas? In the old days, of course, when English was a new language, writers would invent new words and use them. Nowadays, it's easy enough to invent new words. They spring to the lips whenever we see a new sight or feel a new sensation. But we cannot use them because the English language is old. You cannot use a brand new word in an old language because of the very obvious, yet always mysterious fact that a word is not a single and separate entity, it is part of other words. Indeed, it is not a word until it is part of a sentence. Words belong to each other, although, of course, only a great poet knows that the word incarnadine belongs to multitudinous seas. To combine new words with old words is fatal to the constitution of the sentence. In order to use new words properly, you would have to invent a whole new language, and that, though no doubt we shall come to it, is not at the moment our business. Our business is to see what we can do with the old English language as it is. How can we combine the old words in new orders, so that they survive, and so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth. That is the question. And the person who could answer that question would deserve whatever crown of glory the world has to offer. Think what it would mean if you could teach or if you could learn the art of writing, why every book, every newspaper we pick up would tell the truth or would create beauty. But there is, it would appear, some obstacle in the way, some hindrance to the teaching of words. For though at this moment at least a hundred professors are lecturing in the literature of the past, at least a thousand critics are reviewing the literature of the present, and hundreds and hundreds of young men and women are passing examinations in English literature with the utmost credit still do we write better? Do we read better than we read and wrote 400 years ago when we were unlectured, uncriticized, untaught? 
Is our modern Georgian literature a patch on the Elizabethan? Well, where are we to lay the blame? Not on our professors, not on our reviewers, not on our writers, but on words. It is words that are to blame. They are the wildest, freest, most irresponsible, most unteachable of all things. Of course, you can catch them and sort them and place them in alphabetical order in dictionaries. But words do not live in dictionaries. They live in the mind. If you want proof of this, consider how often, in moments of emotion, when we most need words, we find none. Yet there is a dictionary. There at our disposal are some half million words, all in alphabetical order. But can we use them? No, because words do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. Look once more at the dictionary. There, beyond a doubt, lie plays more splendid than Anthony and Cleopatra, poems lovely on the oath to Nightingale, novels beside which Pride and Prejudice or David Copperfield are the crude bunglings of amateurs. Only a question of finding the right words and putting them in the right order. We can't do it because they do not live in dictionaries, they live in the mind. And how do they live in the mind? Variously and strangely, much as human beings live, ranging hither and thither, falling in love, meeting together. It is true they are much less bound by ceremony and convention than we are. Royal words meet with commoners. English words marry French words, German words, Indian words, Negro words, if they have a fancy. Indeed, the less we inquire into the past of our dear mother English, the better it will be for that lady's reputation, for she has gone a roving, a roving fair maid. Thus to lay down any laws for such irreclaimable vagabonds is worse than useless. A few trifling rules of grammar and spelling is all the constraint we can put on them. All we can say about them is we peer at them over the edge of that deep, dark, and only fitfully illuminated cavern in which they live, the mind. All we can say about them is that they seem to like people to think before they use them and to feel before they use them. But to think and to feel not about them, about something different. They are highly sensitive easily made self-conscious. They do not like to have their purity or their impurity discussed. If you start a society for pure English, they will show their resentment by starting another for impure English, hence the unnatural violence of much modern speech, the protest against the Puritan. They are highly democratic, too. They believe that one word is as good as another. Uneducated words, as good as educated words. Uncultivated words, as good as cultivated words. There are no ranks or titles in their society. Nor do they like being lifted on the point of a pen and examined separately. They hang together in sentences, paragraphs, sometimes for whole pages at a time. Then they hate being useful. They hate making money. They hate being lectured about in public. In short, they hate anything that stamps them with one meaning or confines them to one attitude. For it is our nature to change. Perhaps that is our most striking peculiarity, their need of change. It is because the truth they try to catch is many-sided, and they convey it by being many-sided, flashing first this way, then that. Thus they mean one thing to one person, another thing to another person. They are unintelligible to one generation, playing the pike staff to the next. And it is because of this complexity, this power to mean different things to different people, that they survive.
Perhaps then one reason why we have no great poet, novelist or critic writing today is that we refuse to allow words their liberty. We pin them down to one meaning, their useful meaning, the meaning which makes us steps train, the meaning which makes us pass the examination. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.